Buddhist geeks. Seriously Buddhist, seriously geeky. Episode 98, Stuart Davis, Bodhisattva Rocker. This week we're joined by prolific musician, artist, writer, and comic Stuart Davis. Davis, a longtime Zen practitioner, shares with us his background as a creative and his unique resulting understanding of the Bodhisattva's path. This is part one of a two-part series. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or a small recurring donation by visiting buddhadharma20.com slash donate. Hello, Buddhist Geeks. This is... Ryan Oki. No, just kidding. This is Vince Horn. And I'm here with Ryan Oki. And he's going to introduce our very special guest today. Yes. Guy we wanted to have on the show for a long time. We've always been a fan of him since we first knew him. So that's maybe not that long. (laughs) And we knew him and we did. It always is at least five years or five in a row? In a row. This is Stuart Davis, and he is an artist. I would say musician, but he's ventured out into many areas now. He's been a musician for a long time. How many years, Stu? Oh, God. Uh, 25. 25. Long time. So, guitarist, songwriter, composer. He's done at least 15 albums. He may only count two of them as good. I yes. think most of them are good. One or two good. If you <laughs> get to you could pull songs from whatever album you want, you could build a good album out of those albums. Let's say this. You've been around long enough to create your own greatest hits album. Yeah, that's my greatest hit album. <laughs> Definitely get get that out. (laughs) We'll get that out next week. And um, you're also going to be, I guess, are you an author before you publish? Can you say you're an author because you're going to be published? That's a good question. I have been published, but not a full book. It's only been like, um, you know, compilation kind of thing. So I don't think I'm really an author yet. I think I'm an aspiring author. Mm. So you have have written a couple books? I have two books. They are with a book agent. One of the things I learned after I wrote a book is that you have to have a book agent, which I found out after I was dropped by my publisher, hmm. which is a Buddhist publisher, by the way, oh. as long as I'm on a Buddhist show, you might, that's a good preface to the interview, which is my book was solicited by, God, should I say the name of the publisher? Let's face it. There's only like three Buddhist publishers <laughs> I mean, in the world. Yeah. We, we're going to have to narrow it down. Wisdom, Shambhala. Yeah. I'm going to let you guys okay. figure it out, but you, <laughs> the second one was right. But you figure it out. You figure it out. So they wanted the book, and Ken Wilber's the editor of this first book I wrote called Sex, God, Rock and Roll, which is a memoir. It's just a simple memoir uh-huh. focusing largely on my wife, Marcy, as a Dakini presence in the world and how my conception of the Bodhisattva's vow was upside down and backwards and how I kind of crawled out of my Zen tree fort in the sky encouraged Mm -hmm. and reinforced by this great Dakini woman, my wife. So I finished that book and I sent it off to the publisher and (laughs) read it and said, nope, this is not right Buddhism. (laughs) Like this is not the kind of Buddhism that we want to put our name on. I talked to another translator and he did a translation of a text. This wasn't even his own writing. And he translated a Tibetan text and they really didn't like it because it was a little bit on the outside of what's normally taught. And they're like, no. Yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. So they told me to get a book agent. They said, you know what you should do? You should get a book agent, which will get you in a different publisher. 
<laughs> I said, okay. And I, so I got a book agent. While I was getting a book agent, I wrote another book, which uh, I had sort of started. Um, but it was a cheater book. It's like one of those assemblages of essays, you know, short, like 10, 12, mm. 20 page essays. And I had a bunch of them laying around because of that audio book I did a while back called Love Has No Opposite. So I just found it like a cathartic thing to write these little short focused things cathartic because they made me laugh and it was totally selfish i was just really into laughing a lot so i did that and while i was doing that my book agent was reading that and said this is the first book Mm. this is the one you should put out first it's funny and everyone will get it and no one knows who you are anyway so why would you release your uh it's called a story of your life it starts with a memoir got it i nailed it (laughs) uh they said don't put your memoir out first you know have someone find out who you are so i have two books going to market in december and nice. they're both going to be shopped to publishers, and I don't know which they'll end up with, but they'll be sold this winter. Cool. Great. And some of that material, a little bit, is being worked into your new television show. That's true. It has also been revivified by the television show we're doing now, which you're a producer on, and yes. we work together all the time, and yeah. we're basically Siamese twins of creative. Yeah. <laughs> Come up from the good part, maybe the upper torso. I'm the evil twin. <laughs> and uh, that yeah, this reappearing in the show, they come out as monologues, and I'm changing them a little bit. They're coming back. Nice. And you want to say a little bit more about Sex God Rock and Roll, the television show? The other thing was Sex God Rock and Roll is a book, but it's also the name of this television show we're doing, which is an hour-long comedy talk show mix. I come out and I do a five-minute monologue, and then there's ten minutes of news, which is comedy, you know, kind of Saturday Night Live newscast approach to news and then there's an interview with people about human stuff things that persons might be interested in and uh, it's a real people-centered show actually and then ken wilbur comes and integrates the material that came previously in the show and i do a song and then there is a huge party at someone's house afterward i wasn't invited to that i well there wasn't one last week but i'm in i'm intending it (laughs) into reality and very important, but a little known fact is you created a language. I'm creating <laughs> yeah. a language. I mean, still. not many people create languages. And I found out why. <laughs> it's a very taxing <laughs> hobby. And I'm still creating it. It's not a finished product, but it is a long ways into the process. And what I can say about that is that I've always been fixated and intoxicated by languages, and especially the way that signifiers and the linguistic structures that we're born into inform or influence or mold our experience and especially interpretation of experience. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that I wondered just early on when I came across languages was like how much of my conception and interpretation of my own life and reality is characterized or colored by the language that I inherited and how much of that is invisible to me. Mm. I don't even realize the way that these filters operate in my consciousness. Does a person who speaks Swahili or Icelandic have a very notable difference in some way? And the more that I started to just in a hobby way, look into languages. I was also studying integral. And one of the things that occurred to me was that languages are very horizontal. And I couldn't find a vertical approach to syntax and semantics or grammar anywhere. And so by horizontal, I mean, like, if you say the word God, you don't know what 
level of consciousness is issuing the signifier, so you don't know where it's coming from. It could be a three-year-old's conception of God or Houston Smith's conception of God, and there's a great deal of difference Mm. in the depth of the consciousness that speaks the word, Mm. and it's never identified. So that's one of the main reasons that I got into it, and then I was also, there's some other things that I wanted to examine about assumptions, like the opposites, the way that a binary system is built into a lot of our assumptions as well and not in a good way. And I wondered, well, could you construct signifiers? If you had one word, could it just point in multiple directions? Mm -hmm. So instead of saying me and you, you could have the same word and you point it one way and it means me and you point it the other way and it means Uh. you. And so built into the assumption of a native speaker would be that there's actually one item and it depends on the way that you point it or combine it with itself, because you could also say me and you to attach them this way, and that could be an us or a triad plural, and you could attach them this way. Yeah. Um, this is radio, so I shouldn't use my fingers to <laughs> illustrate. <laughs> but the point being that you can use one word to point in many directions, and you can also have it be conjugated in altitudes. And that's the reason I started making the language. But the more that I got into that, the more that I realized what I don't know about linguistics, which is a lot. It's a lot. It's a very mathematical, exhaustive process, and I'm not a mathematician, and I'm interested in the interiors and the meanings, and not so much in the systems. And so when I would construct the systems, I get 5,000 words into the lexicon and change a rule of grammar. Oh, no. And it's just, I mean, it's like the whole, you know, you have to take apart a building brick by brick. Right. So that's why it's a very ongoing process, and I've stopped targeting a date of some kind of conclusion or whatever. But I think there's about 10,000 words in the language now. So if you're still here, (laughs) the show is Buddhist Geeks, (laughs) where we talk about Buddhist stuff. Now, actually, I mean, I think it's the reason why I think it's actually good to have you just keep, you know, talking about all these different things you do is um, for the listeners to know why we want to speak to you. And it's, I think it's a little bit harder for me to describe you as a person to other people. I just, it's just so much better to experience you, to experience you, uh, your art or the things that you do in life and hear you talk about it. And then when we talk about this other stuff related to practice, I think it'll provide context, maybe. Provide some That's a great more. point. We should talk about practice because what has remained unsaid thus far is that all of this is contextualized by the Bodhisattva's vow for me. If the Bodhisattva's vow is the compass that is guiding a a person's life, and I do take that as the guiding force of my life and the the primary imperative of my existence, which is Mm. to wake up for the sake of love, freedom, and all other beings, and to work for the liberation of all beings, then the riddle becomes, well, what are the facilities or faculties that help in that process? How can I help myself wake up, and how can I be available or at the disposal of others to increase awakened awareness in the world in whatever way possible. And if you can't connect with another human being, if you can't enter into or share your worlds and your inner most meaningful dimensions, then you're at a loss right there. I mean, Mm -hmm. it requires, the whole thing is built on relationship to my mind. So Mm -hmm. it became apparent, you know, years ago before probably I was even with Marcy, but uh, amplified by being with her, that relationship is a really, really big part of this. Mm-hmm. And a lot of what inhibits my value as a practitioner is the ways my capacity to be in relationship are inhibited. So mm-hmm. that's why language, that's why art, that's why music, that's mm-hmm. why live audiences, comedy, 
laughter, I think, is one of the great underestimated tools at our disposal to create freedom. I just think there's something very mysterious in laughter. And it's like in that moment where you're really letting go and laughing hard, it's total mystery. You, most often, the jokes that move me most is like, I don't even know why I'm laughing until you construct it after the fact. You build like, oh God, that was funny, I guess, because da da da. Right. But you laugh first. Right. And it's such a moment of freedom and eureka. And so all of the things that I'm into, I'm trying to figure out a way to live in the West, in America right now, use modern forms of media, use real relationships and discover what the Dharma looks like right now in this culture at this time in my body and this set of relationships and these possibilities. Perfect. You're mentioning the Bodhisattva vow and what that means to you, but maybe it would be helpful to kind of tease out a little bit some of the understandings, the different understandings of the Bodhisattva vow and how yours is particularly unique or not necessarily unique in the sense that you just created something that hasn't existed before, Mm -hmm. hasn't been in tradition, but there are definitely different perspectives. Yeah. And I'm not sure that I do understand the Bodhisattva's vow. I try to, and I'm yeah. trying as best as possible. But I would first and foremost identify as a clumsy student, as a, a groping practitioner. And you, that's not false humility. I think that my teacher would be also, you know, I'm just kind of a wacky fit with any, I don't think the Buddhists are running around claiming me as some sort of, sort of great, you know, sounding for their work. But my understanding of it is really literal too. I mean, I actually do have a deep, profound conviction in reincarnation. I am completely convicted in my experience or emotion. I mean, I can't say that I have proof, but I have a pretty literal reading of the text. And I think that when I leave this body, that my soul will need to have reached a point of focus and stabilization to remain capable of navigating the in-between life realms of the Mm -hmm. bardo i Mm -hmm. think you literally your soul is hit with an intensity of phenomena that almost causes it or often does cause it to pass out Mm -hmm. and if your soul passes out sort of kicks to a default and you get spit back into samsara in a way that you're not participating in the choice and it's useful to be able to participate with choice and volition and if the essential self is stabilized enough and That's my understanding of why meditation practice is valuable as well, which is it stabilizes witnessing awareness through waking, dreaming, and deep dreamless states, which will be very similar to the stabilized awareness that will be needed in between lifetimes. So if you can really stay in witness 24-7, so to speak, Mm -hmm. while in body, then when you excarnate, you'll have a better shot at being able to choose the next incarnation. The reason that's valuable is because once the essential self is working as an agent in the mystery full-time, let's say, Mm -hmm. its capacity to liberate and be liberated goes way up through the roof. So my understanding of the Bodhisattva's vow is the meditation practices and the training and discipline of awareness can create an opportunity, which is unique to the human form. We have this divine we're straddling, we're ape and angel, you know, we're, we're both infinite and also finite. And there's a lot to be said about the unique opportunity of the human vehicle. So if you get that, which is why I'm Buddhist, it's not because there's any belief. I mean, it's just my intuitive hit of it, I guess. The reason I loved Zen in a contradiction almost is that there's no beliefs. Ultimately, the part of it that appealed to me was that all beliefs are false. And that was the first spiritual maxim that 
felt like it hit home for me. Mm. So I have a, the belief that all beliefs are false ultimately and just in that they're ephemeral or passing, but also that they're incredibly useful. And the paradox is what I use as the compass, which is I need to understand the discipline and training and cultivation of these facets. I do believe in them and their functionality, and I've tested it, and as far as the test shows so far, it's true. But also, ultimately, you know, it is an endless sequence of decoys in every direction. And that's why I say I don't really know. I don't really understand. Mm -hmm. I think it's all decoys. I think, you know, even the filters of my own interpretations of this practice are very misleading and could all be trumped and rebooted upon excarnation. Mm -hmm. I have no idea what will look like next time. But I just know that I know as much as I get to know and that it's really important to practice and work hard for the sake of love. And I do literally believe that uh, the essential self, when trained and cultivated to that capacity, can make the choice next time around. And the Bodhisattva's vow, to me, is that's the kind of game it is, you know? I want to be able to choose. I don't know if I'll remember this lifetime next time I come back around. Probably not. But there's some pretty intensely, you know, the data on children in reincarnation, I think it's from the University of Virginia where they yeah, had a center right. there. But mm -hmm. It's just, come on. I mean, it's pretty mind-blowing. Right. Yep. Yep. Totally. This, that stuff spooked me. That's not what I base all that on, but I thought it was confirming to read about it. Mm -hmm. So that's my kind of addled meandering through the Bodhisattva's vow. Yeah, so you mentioned that you heard the maxim from Zen that all beliefs are, are kind of false in a certain way. How did you get into Zen? How did you start that path? I got into Zen because I was making a record, and my drummer, who is a Zen priest at Clouds and Water in St. Paul... He was my drummer at the time, and we were talking about spirituality one night, and I was just saying, you know, I describing a sense that there was something profound and radical that that trumped or transcended our ourselves, and I had had some spiritual experiences, but I was telling him I didn't think they fit with any religion or or belief system, and he said, well, you should you sound like a Zen practitioner, you should go to a Zendo, and I was like, what what is I had no idea. And I was just like, what is, how does it work? You know, teach me to meditate. So I went to a Zendo in Minneapolis and I heard a talk and it was just immediately, I mean, like when I walked into a Zen center, I was like, oh my God, why haven't I been here for like, t just the smells and everything. I mm -hmm. had a very powerful sense of family. Mm -hmm. I knew that that was my yeah. family and I couldn't believe that I hadn't found them before that. And I went to a bunch of different Zendos for a long time, and mainly in Minneapolis at Dharma Field uh, with Hagen Sensei. And then when I moved to Boulder, I have not really had a home Zendo in Boulder, but Genpo Roshi's been my teacher. And mm -hmm. it was the same thing when I, when I saw him the first time where I just, I immediately had this radical feeling of joy and ebullient discovery and recognition. I really felt a sense of recognition like, oh my God, this is my teacher. But I was so afraid to be vulnerable about how, what I was feeling. I didn't want to tell anybody. It sounded goofy and ridiculous and new agey to just be like, I met my teacher. I know it. I recognize it in his eyes. So I waited a year because I was like, That's I'm probably idea. wrong. I was like, yeah, I'm probably wrong. So I went to his retreats for a year and I was also worried that he would turn out to be a fraud or, you know, the wrong kind of fraud for me. <laughs> I think we're all frauds ultimately, but there's, you know, there's some good fraud you got to get into. So I went with him for a year and finally I, and I was asking all his students and uh, successors, like, what is the worst thing about Roshi? 
what is the scandal in this community? There's got to be a problem somewhere. And then one day he said, don't ask me if I'm abusing my power. Ask me how I'm abusing my power. <laughs> and I was like, okay, that helps. Yeah, totally. So then I um, made the dive and became a student. Nice. So the way I've heard you talk about it before, before you got into Zen, you're kind of hardcore rock and roll, kind of going crazy in certain ways. And then it sounded like you had a pretty huge equilibrium swing toward the other end. Yeah. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what that was like and what specifically that looked like. Did you stop drinking or stop? Did you get oh, yeah. extreme in certain ways? So extreme and so like pendulum swinging black and white, which is probably a feature of my personality. But I was a rock and roll, indulgent, bass, impulse driven kind of reptilian brainstem guy for like 10 years. <laughs> just, you know, completely uh, allowing my midsection. Well, let's it's not really your midsection, your belly, right? First and second shock where we're driving my tour van for about 10 years. <laughs> there, let's put it that way. And then when I became a practitioner and this was, I probably discovered Ken about a year before I really got into the Zen Ken stuff. Wilbur. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I got into practicing and I just flipped the other way so hard and I stopped having sex with anybody and I, I stopped drinking and using any drugs and I just like meditated five, six, seven hours a day alone. And it was a very, you know, monastic kind of approach, which had some really great things about it, but it was a total flip-flop. And I just became the most, you know, the truth is I come from a fundamentalist Lutheran family in Minnesota and I became a total fundamentalist Zen nut. And I just, I had to be so unbearable to be around. I mean, I've probably always have been, but especially at that time, just because the judgment and stink and self-righteousness that oozes out of that kind of silence, you know, and that, that <laughs> so, like you've meditated for a month and you think you're the deepest cat ever, or you had one tiny little spiritual experience or something. So I did that for a long time. And Ken, to his credit, was always one to say, you know, don't go so hardcore. Don't say either or. Because I was like, I'm quitting music. I'm going to be a monk. I'm moving to Japan. I'm da, da, da. And he was like, don't do that. Keep making music. Be a person in the world. Yeah. You don't have to you know, freak out. But I freaked out. And Roshi was the same way. And the thing that really brought me back was my wife, Marcy, who's a miraculous human being who has a profound native spiritual awakened awareness and no need for anybody to know about it or to... She has no desire or need to be seen as deep or realized in some way and i was almost the inversion of that which is i had no realization and wanted everyone to think i was <laughs> buddha and, and she gradually and lovingly beat the crap out of me for like five six years and just continued to to lovingly in private and not in a mean or demeaning way but show me how profoundly limited and ridiculous my whole and how backwards it was how you, you can conceive of, of sayings like, well, you know, form is emptiness and emptiness is form and blah, 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 which is so easy to do when you're sitting on Mazendo on retreat or whatever. But when you have babies and there's crap and it's like every shortcoming of your personality is paraded in front of all of your friends and loved ones. <laughs> and it's just like you really, I really had the encounter of like, man, I am a total asshole. I'm a totally, totally selfish 
asshole whose only gift is the ability to rationalize all of my own shortcomings and play this shell game where I hide the putrid elements of me under pleasing, shiny, sparkly things like art or songs or performances or being charismatic in events. And it was just painful mm-hmm. to have first realized that and then have to ask the question like, okay, well, what can I do about that? Which, going back to the Bodhisattva's vow, that's a big, big problem when you realize mm-hmm. that, like I did, like I was just a smart, arrogant jerk who was masquerading. And so Marcy was the way to to begin to be able to ask that question because she knew she has like a, a kind of wisdom to help jerk guys through those riddles. And you don't even know that you're actually working on them when you're working on them. And she just like baby steps. So a few baby steps have been taken, but I think that I'll be a clumsy practitioner for the rest of my life, which is okay as long as I'm sincere and trying hard. And I am mm-hmm. now and more sincerity and engagement, but you know, you can't ever let down your guard, man. The reptile's always back there. One, <laughs> crawl right back up into the brain. Yeah. Run the show. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com slash conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.